Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. I'm Ryan Sean Adams, I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, this is the type of episode we've not done on Bankless before. What makes this one so special? You know, I don't think anyone has done an episode like this. Uh, Justin Drake, who is a cryptographic researcher at the EF, he loves cryptography. And that is one of the harder subjects to do a podcast about, especially when, you know, you you and I are generally non-technical and Justin is extremely technical, yet he did a fantastic job breaking down cryptography uh, so we could help understand how it's going to fill some of the chinks in the armor that we have in this cryptocurrency industry, right? So we use Uniswap as like, like the, the premier example of the, the application that everyone knows and has probably engaged with, yet there are a few trust bottlenecks for engaging with Uniswap. Uh, MetaMask is a trust bottleneck. The front end of the website is a trust bottleneck. Um, and there's a number of other things that you are implicitly trusting when you use an application like Uniswap that aren't any, anything to do with the Uniswap, the protocol itself, but are still holes in the armor when it comes to trust. And so what this episode was about was how we are just at the beginning of the crypto economic revolution. We start off this episode defining crypto economics. And Justin says, uh, talks about how, you know, originally the cypherpunk vision was all about a cryptography enabled world, yet that was super ambitious and perhaps never going to happen. And therefore the integration of economic assurances or assumptions with cryptographic assurances or assumptions assumptions is really powerful and basically what this industry stands on. And we have so much left untapped potential in the realm of crypto economics that we have not yet applied to our daily interactions with the Ethereum blockchain, with the Bitcoin blockchain. So this is all about moon math, what we can do with all of these crypto economic tools that we've developed, yet we have not yet applied. Justin is really bullish on the future of cryptographic, crypto economic tools for helping improve the trustlessness of, of these systems that we use on a day-to-day basis. Really a fantastic episode. I think one of my favorites. Part of the reason this is important, guys, is because Bankless is all about giving you mental models for how to think about crypto and ultimately how to guide what you do in crypto, how you use it, your investments, how what you do in your kind of daily life using uh, DeFi systems. And I think there are kind of two schools of thought about crypto that guide investing paradigms. One is sort of crypto is an economic movement, uh, an emphasis on the money. Bitcoiners tend to be more that side. Uh, And the other is crypto is a a software. Uh, It can evolve and change over time. Our episode recently, David, with Chris Dixon, uh, more expressed that mentality. And you know what the truth is? is it's both of those things. It's not just money and it's not just software, it's software money. And you have to understand both sides of that coin in order to guide your investment decisions and have the correct mental models for this industry. And this was a beautiful blend of, I think, those two things. It really showed the the softwareness and the upgradability and the enhancement potential of the software compute layer of crypto without sacrificing the economics piece of it, which is so important. Crypto economics, it's both of these things together. In this episode, we talked about uh, Justin's heuristics, his his rules of thumb for engaging with crypto economics. He says 
that if cryptography doesn't do it, doesn't solve the problem, you can therefore rely on crypto economics or add in crypto, crypto add in economic assurances on top of your cryptography. But then he also says, if you can do it with just cryptography, you should do it with just cryptography. And that resonates with the protocol sync thesis. If we can relegate things to math, we totally should. That was one of my big takeaways. We end the conversation, this this marathon of a conversation over two <laughs> hours long, our longest episode yet. We end this conversation with a thought experiment about how Cryptography is changing and things in this industry need to change with it. Uh, and Justin believes in, and apparently crypto the industry or the academic study of cryptography points in this direction that quantum computing will come to eventually break Bitcoin, the blockchain and Ethereum, the blockchain, unless we can pivot and put in new, uh, new tools, new security mechanisms that prevent quantum from uh, computing from breaking these systems. We talk about Bitcoin's calcification and how it might not be able to pivot to a post-quantum world. And in that world, we could actually create a scenario where BTC, the asset, separates from Bitcoin, the blockchain, and uploads itself to the blockchain that does have these new uh, new uh, holes, these security holes as a result of quantum computing patched, which we think, of course, is going to be Ethereum 2.0. That is a fascinating conversation. Imagine a decoupling of BTC, the asset, from Bitcoin, the blockchain, and then it exists entirely on a new blockchain. That was, a fan, fan, that was an absolutely fascinating part of the conversation. As usual, guys, we have a full debrief where David and I go over our thoughts immediately after the episode. So if you're a premium subscriber to Bankless, make sure you check that out. We will include a link as usual. Without further ado, David, we should talk about our sponsors. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got back into crypto back in 2017, and it has been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens like Wi-Fi, Aave, Uni, and also they are one of the few exchanges that has liquid DAI markets. Having both the option of logging into the Gemini.com website or instead opening the Gemini mobile app has allowed me to be able to access any and all exchange and on or off ramp services that I've needed to on a moment's notice. With instant deposits and fast withdrawals, I'm able to make my money do the things I want it to when I want it to. You can buy crypto safely and securely on Gemini with the peace of mind of knowing that your investments are insured and protected with industry-leading cybersecurity. You can open up a free account in under three minutes at gemini.com slash gobankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after signup, you'll be gifted a free $15 bonus. Check them out, gemini.com slash gobankless. If you are looking for a product that connects your fiat bank account with DeFi tokens and products, you need to download the Dharma mobile app. Dharma is a non-custodial smart contract wallet and comes with a bridge that connects you right into your bank account. Dharma is the fastest and most efficient wallet between your fiat in your bank account and any token on Uniswap or even any vault in Yearn. With Dharma, you can get over $25,000 per week into the DeFi universe, and you can do it non-custodially. If you or anyone you know is hot on DeFi and you're trying to get your money into a DeFi investment, Dharma is the place to go. 
Signing up and going through KYC is an absolute breeze. It took me just under three minutes. And after signing into my bank account via Plaid, I am now just one transaction away from any token that Uniswap has to offer. Go to www.dharma.io, that's D-H-A-R-M-A.io, download the Dharma app and get yourself unbanked today. Bankless Nation, we are super excited to have on Justin Drake, who is a cryptographer. He's a researcher at the Ethereum Foundation. And to say he played a key role in the development of ETH2 is probably an understatement. He's been a key force behind us. Um, he's here to tell us all about how early we are in this crypto revolution, the advances that are coming in cryptography that are about to change everything we think we know about cryptography, crypto, and this entire industry. Justin, how are you doing today, sir? I am doing great, guys. Thank you so much for having me. You know what? I've got to ask this before we get into the, the moon math and the, and the really fun stuff. ETH launched in 2020. Wow. How does that feel, ETH2 launch? Amazing. Um, I mean, I've spent three years of my life dedicated to this um, and it was a great reward. And seeing that we have, you know, three billion dollars, um, you know, staking and that we basically haven't had uh, issues so far is, is, is pretty astounding. Justin, this is actually kind of a unique episode, I think, that's about to come out of the Bankless podcast, because this is the first episode where uh, you actually pitched the episode to us. And this is something that I would not have thought about to be able to, or, or the skills or the knowledge to produce this sort of conversation. So uh, I mean, and I know that you are absolutely fired up to talk about what we are going to talk about. Maybe you could kind of give us the, the, two, the TLDR, the elevator pitch for what we are about to talk about and why you are so stoked about this conversation. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I was inspired by you because you had this this bullish Ethereum, um, you know, series, and I'm just so bullish Ethereum, um, <laughs> and I just wanted to, you know, reflect on why am I so bullish? And you know, one of the big reasons is that the fundamentals are so strong, right? The whole space is built on crypto economics, which is you know part cryptography and part um, game theory and incentives, and you know the the crypto the cryptography part in particular we're at the very beginning um there's so much room to grow and it's a story that i think will unfold over many years possibly even decades um and there's just so many reasons to believe that the 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 reality we live in today is very very primitive um and it, you know it may sound like um you know, we're moving to, 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 to a world, you know, when they describe, try and describe the future, it might, might sound like sci-fi, but I, I really do believe that we're, we're moving towards that, that end goal. So where does this conversation start? Uh, one of the, the lines that you put into the agenda was that, uh, you know, with, with regards to cryptography and crypto economics, we are just in the most primitive age, the stone age, where we have like, you know, the fire and the wheel, but so much of the world's inventions are ahead of us. Where does this conversation start? I think, um, you know, one interesting, you know, starting point, I think, is the, the, the cypherpunk uh, movement, right? So they had this, amazing dream in the 80s, which is, can we try and rebuild all of society on really strong foundations, and specifically cryptographic foundations? Uh, and people back then were really fired up, 
you know, for ideological reasons in a similar way that some people today in the crypto space are really fired up. Um, but to, to a large extent, um, I think that dream kind of didn't pan out the, the way that people hoped. And, you know, we had a few decades of, 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 of silence there. Um, and then, you know, we had, we had a few clues, you know, things like, like BitTorrent, um, which uh, basically allowed us to, to um, have really strong foundations in the sense that BitTorrent to a large extent is just cryptography plus, you know, peer-to-peer -peer networking and plus even a little bit of incentivization in the early days. Um, and then we had, uh, you know, Satoshi's big breakthrough, uh, Bitcoin, which to me is kind of the, the birth of crypto economics in a, in a, in a really uh, big way. Um, and now we're, um, I guess we're, we're reaching a point where um, kind of this, you know, this, this um, point in the, in the exponential curve where it's the inflection point. Everything happened quite slowly, but now we're going to see this explosion, uh, you know, largely driven uh, with, with Ethereum. Where does that inflection point come from? Like what about the what's different about Bitcoin and crypto economics that we didn't have before? Why is why is there this Cambrian explosion going on now? Yeah, um, I mean, w w one of the, the, the big things, I guess, and it was the, the key innovation of Ethereum is, is programmability. Um, so now we're in a position where Ethereum can um, absorb all the innovation that we uh, we need to absorb to solve all these these problems that we have. So in the crypto space, where you know we're starting from the foundation, so we have to reinvent the whole stack. Uh, we're reinventing the wheel to a large extent, and so even though we have lots of superpowers such as you know decentralization and, and trustlessness and things like that, like that, we also have a lot of trade-offs, um, and you know. The, the superpowers are so awesome that we're happy to live with the trade-offs, but oftentimes, um, in fact, you know, almost all the time, I believe that these trade-offs that we have relative, for example, to, to existing services like centralized exchanges in the context of decentralized trading, I think we can basically fill in all the gaps um, that we have today and be at least as good as centralized services in every single respect. And in some in some key respects, just totally outshine them, uh, you know, by by a factor of ten or hundred x. Can we can we talk about this idea of crypto economics for a second in the context of of Bitcoin? Because I just want to make sure that that's clear to all of our listeners, right? So, um, you know, the the cypherpunks were very much into cryptography and the revolution that it could bring, self sovereign money, privacy, all of these things, but they were missing something. They were missing the economics part that made Bitcoin so special and that made Satoshi's white paper so special. Um, I'm not necessarily sure that that's completely intuitive to people. The sorts of things you can do when you blend not just cryptography, but it's cryptography plus economics. It's both of those two things together that was the major innovation and discovery of Bitcoin. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, one metaphor that I have is that um, cryptography is this very powerful tool, is the very powerful building block, like like the brick, right? You want to build a wall and you have you have the bricks. But if you have bricks alone, that's not going to work. You need something to glue the bricks together. You need the mortar. And um, the, the, the economic part kind of fills in the gap and glues everything together so that you have a, a, a coherent system that breathes life. 
Um, if you take cryptography alone, it's kind of somewhat dry and somewhat abstract. And uh, once you bring in the economic part, which could be a relatively thin layer, but you know, a critical layer, um, then, then, then suddenly you have uh, pieces of the puzzle that stick together to form a, a coherent um, system. Before Bitcoin, the cypherpunks were really trying to solve this problem for almost decades, right? And they, they innovated in many different ways. One of them was e-gold. Um, there was there's just a number of different like Bitcoin precursors that I think all relied on pure cryptography, right? And it was that integration of economics that really w was what allowed Bitcoin and therefore this whole entire industry to flourish. Maybe you could talk about just the relationship between cryptography and economics and maybe um, tell our listeners, like, maybe when, it, when is it the better time to use cryptography and when is it the better time to use economics and how you think about balancing these two forces? So I think a, a lot of the, the, the previous solutions kind, kind of had... Um, partial decentralization. They, they used um, cryptography to the, to the maximum extent possible, but they still had this somewhere in the system, some sort of, of central party. And that led to attacks, for example, by, um, by governments. Um, like one of the, I guess, one of the big realizations is that cryptography alone, so Let's, let's look at the goals of cryptography. What is the goal of cryptography? It's basically to take a trusted third party that does some sort of functionality and replace it by pure code or pure, pure mathematics. And it turns out that there's some impossibility results. There's some things that you just fundamentally cannot do. And so what you want to do is you want to relax the constraints a little bit. So you have this, this spectrum of trust, right? So you, on the one hand, you have very low trust technology like mathematics, and then you can walk your way up. You have cryptography, physics, and then maybe economics. And then, you know, you have things that are very, you know, human um, rooted in, in, in human culture, things like the legal system or the monetary system or even religious systems um, that are deep in, in, in the narrative. And, you, you know, you want to go as far as possible in, into the spectrum but you want to be realistic, right? There's some things you just can't do with cryptography. Okay, so if we kind of turn it down a notch and include economics, um, then suddenly this is the inflection point where um, you can breathe life into, into the cryptography. And to be very specific, one, one problem that cryptography alone cannot solve is the double spend problem. So it's this idea that you need to have some sort of entity that can remember that you've spent something so that it can prevent you from spending it again. And that's this notion of, of state uh, and consensus. So cryptography, the way I think of it, it, it um, kind of solves stateless problems. Um, so it can, it can, you can start with a state and then, and then it will give you a valid state transition. It can prove to you that something's happened according to the rules or with possibly you know, certain security guarantees like privacy or whatever. Um, but one thing that it cannot do is take this graph of all the possible states and state transitions and collapse it down to one canonical one, which we call the truth. So basically what consensus does is that it, it, it anchors um, kind of, it's a little bit like a quantum analogy, right? So you have in the world, in the quantum world, you have many different states that live in a superposition. And 
you know, you kind of want to choose one, you want to collapse it to just one. And this is what consensus does. And in order to solve consensus, you need to move a little bit out of cryptography and, and dip your toe into, um, you know, as things that are very economic. And more specifically, you know, we have assumptions like the 51% assumption in Bitcoin, or, you know, in Ethereum, we could have the, the two thirds um, assumption. And, you know, we can talk about these assumptions in many different flavors. You know, we have um, things like honesty assumptions, where we just um, model the actors as always behaving according to the rules. But we could also have, you know, maybe um, uh, rationality assumptions. We can assume, and this is closer to the, the reality of things, where um, we can assume that, for example, two thirds of the of the players are, are rational, you know, they're, they're motivated by, by money. Money is kind of interesting. It's like this, this one of the things that really transcends cultures and, 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 and uh, boundaries. Um, and you can use money kind of as one of the really strong layers to, as the basis, as the foundation for, for, for building society. Bitcoin is famously known as a string of signatures. It likes the in the white paper, like Satoshi called Bitcoins as like a, a very long string of signatures. And that's all cryptography. But what you're saying is that Bitcoin as a system is a and determining what the correct string of signatures is, is determined by social consensus. And that that's uh, and Bitcoiners are famously saying, like, no, there is no social consensus to Bitcoin. There's only math. But a lot of coming, things coming out of the Ethereum camp is like, well, at the end of the day, crypto economics is always one part secured by the social layer. So what you're, what you're saying is that the reason why everyone can come to consensus about what the correct string of blocks is, is incentivized by economics, particularly by the Bitcoin hard cap. The BTC hard cap provides the economic incentive to uh, and enables economic assurances. But in in your description, uh, Justin, you were saying that you know in, originally the cypherpunks wanted everything to be run by cryptography. That was really hard. That was really ambitious. Perhaps even impossible. And so therefore, we can compromise. And instead of just relying on only cryptographic assurances, we also integrate economic assurances or, or assumptions as well. But to me, in my mind, that indicates a priority or a tier, right? Where, you know, if we can do something with cryptography and without, econom without economics, we should perhaps do it with cryptography if we don't have to make that compromise. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, exactly. Um, so we do have this this spectrum of trust that I call it, but, you know, I think you call it the, the, the protocol sync thesis, right? Like the heavy, dense stuff. Um, it wants to go at the, at the bottom. It sinks to the bottom and that's the foundation um, for, for, for your stack. Um, yeah, so that's exactly right. When you relax things, suddenly a whole world of opportunities appears. And I have this kind of heuristic, which is that if cryptography doesn't work, try crypto economics and usually it will work. Mm -hmm. um, and this is actually in the, you know, in, in, in research for FM 2.0, this is kind of what helps us push forward. Like usually like the very first solution that we come up with is crypto economic. And we know, yeah, you know, it's possible to solve this. And, you know, at least we have one solution. Um, and then kind of the next step is, okay, can we improve upon this? And then that brings me to my second heuristic, which is that if you can do without crypto economics, if you can do it purely with cryptography, then that is going to be at least in the long run, a superior solution. Um, 
And so that's what you want to be aiming for long term. That is one of the best mental models for understanding the protocol sync thesis that I've ever heard. And so that I think this is already a super valuable conversation. Ryan and I have described, you know, the protocol sync thesis as like, you know, trust minimized, decentralized, uh, you know, credibly neutral. But at the end of the day, what what's going on is we're just boiling back down to that's what cryptography is. And so the protocol sync thesis, I think, could be uh, restated in uh, systems that use cryptography more than they use economic or trust-based assumption. Right. And actually, you can you can look at, at, at this heuristic kind of in the, in the fullest spectrum of things. So if you look at um, Uniswap, for example, um, you know, just to, to get started, just to get to the real world, it's made some compromises. You know, it relies on Infura. It relies on the graph. It relies on all sorts of centralized providers. But... Um, you know, over time, you can kind of peel off these um, these layers that are higher trust and kind of shift everything to 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 the high trust uh, realm. And you know, with lots of engineering, lots of creativity and research, we will get there. Um, and you know, there's some good reasons to believe um, that you know the the end goal is the moon, right? We will solve all our problems. Uh, we have extremely powerful. Um, arsenal of tools um, that have been developed in uh, theoretical uh, cryptography and those will make their way progressively through applied cryptography and then you know the final the final boss which is real world cryptography so i don't think we want to dive into this justin because i don't think people fully understand um the the field of of cryptography so what what we've basically done in kind of the, the, the past couple of decades is we, we discovered this amazing thing called cryptography as as humanity. And then uh, with Bitcoin, we blended cryptography with economics. And that gave us the ability to get a digital consensus on things. It was a huge unlock for humanity in that it helped us solve the double spend problem so we can have this marvelous thing we call digital scarcity, which was not previously a layer on the internet. So that's cryptography plus economics, digital scarcity, right? And that is Bitcoin. And Ethereum, of course, made that sort of a general digital scarcity compute engine. But here's the thing. Cryptography is a changing field and an advancing field, right? So the cryptography that Bitcoin is based on, what was that uh, built out in the like 1960s, 1970s, that sort of era of cryptography? Maybe you could tell us on that. But the exciting thing about this that I want our listeners to know is that um, cryptography is advancing too. In, the, in, the, in kind of a similar way where we had the compute revolution with Moore's Law, we had the ability to put more transistors on a chip, right? With these cryptography advances, we can almost put like more trust on a chain, more consensus. More, it, it helps us, these cryptography advances help us scale consensus to all new levels. And it's a it's a changing field. Can you talk about how crypto economics is just getting started because of these new cryptography functions? Right. One of the things that I'll say is that, the, as I mentioned, there's these different flavors of cryptography, right? There's the theoretical cryptography, which basically asks, can you do something, yes or no? Um, and you know, usually the way you answer it is, if the answer is yes, then they'll try and give you a specific construction. If the answer is no, they'll give you an impossibility result telling you it's impossible to do. Um, but oftentimes, if the answer is yes, the construction that they will give you as cryptographers is like, 
you know, pie in the sky, it's going, it feels very distant from the real world. Um, and for, for decades, you know, we've had theoretical cryptographers who are, you know, passionately in love with what they do. You know, it's a very intellectually stimulating, but they're disconnected from reality. And it, it turns out that in theoretical computer, um, cryptography, we've made huge leaps and bounds. Um, and actually this um, kind of, in a way, culminated this year, 2020, um, with um, the discovery of what's called code obfuscation. Um, so it's a very powerful cryptographic tool. Um, and now we know how to do it on very standard cryptographic assumptions. And sorry, is this anything to do with the cryptocurrency industry or is code obfuscation something that is purely out of the cryptographic domain? So um, code obfuscation is kind of this beacon of hope for um, and it's kind of uh, uh, giving us a roadmap for the next few um, you know, years and, and decades. And in short, what it what it tells us is that everything that we could wish to do in cryptography, we can do it. Um, and so it's basically the zero to one moment where whatever you want to do, you can do it unless, um, you know, unless there's some sort of impossibility result. But if, if you can do it, you can do it with code obfuscation. Um, so at the very least, because we know how to do code obfuscation, we know how to do kind of the rest of cryptography. The, 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 the term that we, we have is that we say that obfuscation is crypto complete. This one building block gives us all the other building blocks, which is a, a really amazing thing. That, that, my mind goes to Turing completeness. Is that an okay like metaphor? Yeah, so it's the same word, complete. Um, Turing completeness is basically once you have a few basic instructions, you can run any program um, you know, that could be run on a computer. Um, and it's the same thing here where uh, with code obfuscation, you actually need two primitives. You need, once you have hash functions and an obfuscation, these two building blocks alone give you the rest of cryptography. And so this is fulfilling, or so what this answers is perhaps maybe the original cypherpunk vision of can the world be completely run on cryptography? And so if, if you're telling me that the, uh, theoretical cryptography is quote unquote solved by code obfuscation, does that mean that the original cypherpunk dream of a cryptography run universe is still in the cards? No, I don't think it's in the cards. And you know, you kind of have these, these things that you just can't do with cryptography. And, and like, um, for me, the, 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 the separating line is stateless versus stateful. So right. um, cryptography can do all the stateless stuff. Um, and then once you combine it with one further ingredient, which is, you know, blockchains or consensus, which will give you this state, um, then you can do everything. And by everything, I mean that you can basically simulate any trusted third party um, with, with just blockchains and, 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 and math. Um, I mean, when you, when you, just to give you a little bit of insight as to what code obfuscation is. So code obfuscation, the idea is that you can have uh, programs um, which hold secrets and these programs are public. So it's kind of this paradox where you have a, an open source program, but it holds the secrets in the program. So it, the, the secret is kind of garbled and obfuscated. Um, and when you think of a trusted third party, what is a trusted third party? Well, if you think of it as a human, for example, that's just 
like a brain with neurons and you can model that as a computer running some sort of an OS, you know, taking in as inputs, you know, these digital signals, um, you know, for, you, for your eyes and whatnot. Um, and then you, you can basically encode um, any, any rules that you'd want from this trust, trusted third party into your program. And instead of running it in kind of, um, in, on a brain, you're gonna run it in, 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 pure, in pure math. Um, and you know, you can kind of, another kind of analogy is, is, is trusted hardware, right? So you have these, these trusted kind of secure enclaves that are meant to uh, run programs, but at the same time hold these secrets it's like a, a hardware wallet, right? So you have this, the secret embedded in the hardware and the, the idea is that you're not meant to be able to extract um, the, the, the secret. Um, and yeah, you can encode um, whatever rules you, you want this trusted third party to do or this trusted hardware to do in code and then you can compile it to just pure math with this code obfuscation uh, technique in theory. So this is all theoretically possible, Justin. So what does it take for the theory to start to catch up to, to the practical? Like, what is the cryptography that lives today in, in Bitcoin, right? And how is that caught up to, to the practical implementation of, of, of Bitcoin? Like, I guess I'm, I'm wondering why we haven't seen the theoretical possibilities in practice yet. Right. The way I think of, you know, the progress of cryptography is like there's, there's three big quantum leaps that need to happen. For So basically, you need to go from zero to one, just say, yes, in theory, this is possible to build. Uh, and that's the realm of theoretical um, cryptography. Then the next big step is basically what's called applied cryptography. And the idea here is that um, basically the, you want to look at the whole design space. And, and, and look at all the different trade-offs and try and, and find constructions with you know, all sorts of different properties that may potentially be applicable at some point into the future. Um, and then you have this final quantum step, which is uh, real-world cryptography. And the idea here is that you have someone with a very specific use case and they're gonna pick one single design in this, in this design space um, and they want to make sure that it's good enough in every single property. And so oftentimes there's, there's a lot of legwork to do to basically, um, you know, just make sure that it, it, it's good enough across the board um, for, for, for use in, in, in the real world. And what Ethereum is basically, it's a machine for turning applied cryptography into real world cryptography. Um, and for, for a very long time, we, ha we haven't really had this massive, um, you know, force pulling cryptography out of the abstract and into the real world. Um, and this is, this is why, like, cryptographers absolutely love blockchains and kind of blockchains is, is, is eating cryptography. You know, you go to a blockchain conference and it's like, sorry, so you go to a cryptographic conference and it's blockchain, blockchain everywhere. Um, and, you know, every time I, I email a cryptographer saying, hey, I read, your, I read your paper, here's a few questions, and hey, maybe we'll, uh, we're considering integrating this into Ethereum, you know, they come back super enthusiastic. You know, they, they love it because, you know, we're giving meaning to, 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 to their work and we're kind of basically giving them um, this, this possibility of, of, of taking it from the uh, applied cryptography into into the, the the real world cryptography, and I guess you know um, 
going back to one of your 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 recent podcasts with with Chris Dixon, right? He was talking about how there's this um, there's a virtuous cycle between the technology and the use case, right? As the use case grows, there's more demand for technology. There's more money, more attention, and that feeds back in to uh, you know um, building more powerful technology, which then unlocks more and more use cases. And you know we've we've seen this, for example, with with computing, as you said, you know, we've seen Moore's law, you know, 20 years ago, you know, you didn't have, you know, GPS in your pocket or you didn't have a camera and, you know, all, all these little gadgets um, led to to all sorts of, of new applications that we couldn't predict, like things like, like Uber. And over time, we're going to grow our tool set of cryptographic gadgets. And we're going to get, um, not only are we going to solve all the known problems that we have with decentralized applications where we had to make a trade-off. For example, we had to trade off privacy or we had to trade off um, scalability or we had to trade off uh, front running or things like that. Uh, but we, my guess is that we're gonna see totally new applications which were you know, basically impossible to predict. That's the thing I feel like Chris was saying in the podcast and that you're also echoing now is that um, of course, these systems uh, are digital scarcity engines, and they 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 produce monies, but they are also computers, right? That can be fundamentally improved from one generation to the next. They can be upgraded. They can be enhanced. You can go from a Pentium processor to something much more powerful, and these enhancements can bring about massive new eras of possibilities that weren't previously possible in the last generation of compute. I think what you're saying, Justin, is like Bitcoin as it stands right now and Ethereum V2, this era of, of compute is just scratching the surface on what these computers and this new era is capable of. That is exactly right. And we're actually seeing um, it's actually the beginning in three different places. So when you think of the blockchain space, we uh, we basically have layer one um, where, you know, we're, we're cramming a lot of innovation into ETH2 and we have a whole roadmap um, for, for deploying this. Uh, and I'm more than happy to talk about it. And then we have innovations at layer two. And like the genius of layer two is that um, once you have, you know, this so-called Turing completeness, once you have the virtual Ethereum virtual machine, um, that's enough to do everything. You reach escape velocity. And so, um, you know, you, you're, you're able to capture whatever comes to you. Like the, the EVM is a sponge for, for, for innovation. And then you have, um, you know, something where it's extremely early days today is all the auxiliary infrastructure, which I guess you could call layer three. Um, you know, things like um, block explorers or, um, you know, search or, you know, basic things like syncing, like like Infura and Metamask. Like all of this is just so, so primitive. We're, we're, we're kind of still doing it the traditional Web 2 way. Um, you know, the, if you want to, to, you know, if you want to build on, on Ethereum, you kind of, as in on the layer one, a decentralized application, you have this forcing function to make your decentralized, the core, the smart contract, you know, decentralized. Um, but then what often happens is that you, you today you, 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 you won't make the investment in all the extra layer three stuff because there's just, there's too many auxiliary services 
um, and it's not your 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 core focus. Um, but over time, um, these uh, technologies will get commoditized, um, and we'll 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 reach a point where the the whole ecosystem will be able to reap the benefits um, that they bring. Hey guys, there is so much left in this interview. Justin takes us through the user story of making a transaction on Uniswap, Uniswap as the model DeFi app. Justin discusses all of the trust points and weaknesses that are involved in this user process. And he gives the cryptographic solution for solving each chink in the armor along the way. We go through six different cryptographic mechanisms and Justin explains to us how it can help create a DeFi enabled world. And then we finish up with one of the most interesting conversations I've heard in a long time, which is of the long-term fate of the Bitcoin blockchain and its destined collision course trajectory with the coming world of quantum computing, which threatens to break a number of the things that make Bitcoin, Bitcoin. He illustrates a cryptographic enabled two-way bridge for BTC the asset to escape Bitcoin the blockchain and upload itself to a new host chain in which it also solves BTC's long-term economic security requirements, which it doesn't really have the budget for anyways, by simply hopping on to a new host blockchain, which we could only presume would be Ethereum. There's so much crazy awesome stuff left in this episode. Don't go anywhere. We have to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. If you want to live a bankless life, you need to get a Monolith DeFi Visa card. Monolith is a one-two punch of both an Ethereum smart contract wallet and an accompanying Visa card that lets you spend the money that you have in your Ethereum wallet everywhere where Visa is accepted. When you swipe your Monolith Visa card at the grocery store or at a restaurant, it actually makes a transaction on the Ethereum blockchain that spends some of the money you hold in your Monolith wallet. It's insanely cool and it's one of the best tools out there for living a bankless but still normal life. Monolith also offers on-ramp services for getting your fiat money into the world of DeFi. So it's trivial to top up your Monolith card if you ever need to, and your deposited money goes straight into your non-custodial wallet. So your money is never held by a centralized intermediary. Because Monolith is native Ethereum infrastructure, the money you hold in your Monolith wallet still has the power of DeFi behind it. Swapping assets on Uniswap or earning yield in DeFi is at your fingertips. Go to monolith.xyz and sign up to get your Monolith Visa card today. Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum and just recently released Aave version 2, which has a ton of cool new features that makes using Aave even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi, Money Legos, Yield, and Composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can deposit in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have deposited collateral. Here you can see me getting a 200 USDC loan against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens and ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock that interest rate in permanently. One of Aave's V2 features is the ability to swap collateral without having to withdraw your assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. Aave does all of this for you all in one seamless transaction, so you don't have to repay loans in order to change the collateral you have backing them. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com. 
You know, I've frequently spoken of this industry as one of the few bright shining spots that I can find in the world right now. There's not, there's pretty, it's pretty easy to find reasons to be pessimistic about the state of the world. Yet with Ethereum and Bitcoin and this whole entire revolution, it really is a shining spot on the hill to be really optimistic about the future. And for some reason, I've always said that I think the future will be better because of things like Ethereum. And when when we people use the metaphor behind like Ready Player One, where like there's infinite possibilities and, and it's such a rich futuristic environment, that seems where we're going. But I've never actually been able to articulate how we get there. And I think that's what we're doing here in this conversation. The the bridge between some crazy, awesome Ready Player One universe and the what we have today with Ethereum 1.0 and then also Ethereum 2.0, the beacon chain, that gap seems to be able to be filled by some of what we are talking about here. And before we, before, uh, we get into that, you were talking about uh, that cryptography as an ac academic study was kind of like locked in the classroom up until blockchain, right? Up until we had crypto economics. And now it seems to be that with the advent of you know crypto and, and blockchain and Ethereum, we've actually been able to actually have a real world place for that academic study to manifest itself in the real world. Would you say that that manifestation is inside the EVM? And how does Ethereum just relate to the uh, study of cryptography and, or cryptographers in general? Can you just uh, expand on that relationship? Yeah, so I think we're going to see crypto, crypto everywhere, not just in the EVM. We're going to see it you know, deep in the guts of the you know the consensus engine so for example in if2 uh, we have five pieces of cryptography right we have bls signatures which basically allows you to have so-called aggreg aggregatable signatures the idea of aggregatable signatures is you have a thousand people signing a message the the, the naive way of verifying these messages is you you verify them one by one like a thousand times and so if if each message, let's take, say, takes one millisecond to verify, verifying a thousand messages is going to cost you a whole second. And that's, you know, very expensive. The idea of aggregatable signatures is you can combine these 1000 signatures into a single one and just verify this one. And that's the, the same as if you had verified all 1000 individually. Um, and just to give you like a scale of the power of cryptography with just this one primitive, so um, if you look at all the other proof of stake systems, you know, they have 1000 validators or less. We, you know, on, on EVE 2, we have right now 60,000 validators and we could even, we could support hundreds of thousands, potentially even millions of validators. Um, and this has real practical consequences. Like right now, um, you know, in order to stake, you need 32 Ether. And, you know, we, we tried really hard to bring this number down, 32 Ether. But it's still, you know, today an insane amount of money is like, for, you know, $40,000 or whatever. Um, but before we had, you know, this, um, this roadmap to use BLS signatures, we were going to go with 1,500 ETH to stake, which is like $2 million or whatever. Um, and that would be like a huge barrier to entry for decentralization. So yeah, that's one of the primitives, very powerful primitive, aggregatable signatures. So that's that that's a small example of, of how cryptography can scale. Basically, you just scale decentralization with aggregated signatures just like that. Went from a $2 million stake, which would have been probably hundreds, maybe thousands if we're lucky validators, to now tens of thousands of validators just with that simple 
cryptographic primitive. I, I want to get back to, to something you were saying, because this all relates, Justin, is that um, you, you were saying Ethereum is, is poised to capture this exponential of all of this cryptography progress, this new era of compute. And you were talking about like the three layers, like there's a layer one, there's a layer two, layer three, all of those areas can kind of capture some of this innovation. But you know what I think is interesting is the question of why is Ethereum poised to capture this versus another crypto network, say a Bitcoin, is because of the layer zero. The layer zero is almost the the social layer. It's kind of a layer that David and I operate on, on Bankless. But you operate on, in a sense too, Justin, in that the Ethereum social contract is very much open. It's very pragmatic. So it, it, it is very much open to these types of innovation. Uh, some will criticize Ethereum for that. So like we just had Lynn Alden, Alden on the podcast and she was talking about like, I like Bitcoin because it's a fully matured 100%. It's done. The project's done, right? It's solidified. Um, whereas Ethereum, it's it's completely changing. But if this this theory of compute, cryptography compute is right, you actually want some change because you want to incorporate these 10x, 100x gains. And it seems like Ethereum has that on the social layer. Is that part of the reason you say Ethereum is perfectly poised to, to capture some of this cryptography uh, advancement? Absolutely. And I think you said it extremely well. Like this layer zero is absolutely critical. Um, and you're right. Like if, if we are if we are living in an exponential world and, you know, we are there, you know, it's really obvious when you zoom out a little bit, um, then, you know, you need to have some some way of adapting to this world. Um, and, you know, you can have like really clever tricks, you know, like the like the um, the, the Ethereum virtual machine where, you know, you you just have this as soon as you reach the Turing completeness, then, then, then you're done and, you know, you can get the best of both worlds. You can get both the kind of the solid layer one, which doesn't change very often and, and kind of all the innovation that can be captured with programmability. Um, but, you know, going back to this layer zero, which is kind of the cultural thing, absolutely, it resonates very strongly with me. Um, you know, we, in the firm culture, we have a culture of, of, of building a culture of innovation, a culture of being at the bleeding edge and not only kind of passively observing the bleeding edge, but actively pushing it forward. Um, and, you know, we have a culture of being, you know, I guess trying to predict the future, like trying to be, you know, placing ourselves 10, 20 years in, into the future um, and, 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 and thinking about, you know, long-term fundamentals, not just, you know, the, the, the present day. Um, and, and for me, you know, being, um, you know, in this space uh, for, for, for several years, you know, when, when, when I think back to the, um, the fundamentals of human motivation, what, what motivates humans? Well, I think Ethereum has everything. So it has um, kind of the intellectual curiosity aspect. It has the ideological aspect where you want, you know, maybe to drive some, some change in society. Um, it has the, the financial aspects. It has the um, explorer aspect where, you know, you're discovering uncharted territory. It has the entrepreneurial aspect. Um, and, you know, it's just a huge amount of dopamine going on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just being in the space because you have. I feel it. I feel it in this episode. <laughs> I, I feel the dopamine rush as you're talking, Justin. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, I think. And I'm, I'm not seeing. You know, I, I am seeing so much, uh, you know, dopamine in the in, in the in the whole space, 
and you know, the bright red spot for me is, is Ethereum. Justin, we're going to get into the topic of, of Uniswap and how more cryptographic tools can help, you know, kind of uh, smooth out the rough edges around an application like Uniswap and all other applications on Ethereum that have chinks in the armor. Because while everyone loves Uniswap because it's trustless and on-chain, there's plenty of supporting infrastructure that needs to go in in order to use uh, use Uniswap, like Infura and MetaMask. These are all central points that needs to be tackled by cryptography. Before we get to that conversation, however, I want to back up and talk about some of these extra new tools in the tool belt, these new cryptographic mechanisms that uh, previously weren't incorporated with, you know, just Bitcoin or Ethereum 1.0. Uh, you, you've stated that, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum 1.0 and then also BitTorrent are just cryptographic hashes and signatures. And those are two tools, you know, the fire and the wheel, as you said. But but there are many, many more tools in the tool belts. What, what new tools do we have that we didn't have when we first, first uh, got Bitcoin or Ethereum 1.0 off the ground? Right. I mean, one tool that you guys might be you know, familiar with, which is you know, absolutely mind blowing. Um, and it's, it's actually one of the reasons why I'm in Ethereum. Like I, I, I was very attracted to the, these, these, these so-called snarks. Um, and you know, today it's almost as if snarks are commoditized, you know, they've become boring, which is amazing, right? We've gone from mind blowing technology, you know, five years ago to something which is, you know, boring and deployed in the real world. Um, so snarks, as you probably know, is basically allows you to take arbitrary computation and squeeze it down, the, squeeze down the, the, the validity of this computation down to tiny proof, um, which is constant size. So you know, you can have, um, you know, a program and you can have some input you, and then, you know, the program could take many, many, you know, minutes or seconds or whatever, days and years uh, to run. Uh, and then it finally will produce an output. And basically you can prove that the output is valid. So it corresponds to the input and the program. Um, and you can verify that in, 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 in constant time. So and that's scale, right? So if if it takes, you know, years to compute something, we could put it at the base layer of Ethereum, but that would be a terrible idea because then Ethereum would take years to co to compute that, especially on a distributed network. And so if we can uh, compress down what is needed to put into the base layer, that scales things, right? And is that is that basically the underlying pattern for all of these new tools? Um, no, so there's like, um, there's very different vectors, like different tools do totally different things. Um, and you're right on the topic of scalability, basically you should think of the blockchain as being this very weak verifier. So it can verify cryptographic tools, but it has very limited uh, computational resources. On the other hand, the real world, kind of the external world outside of blockchain is a very, very powerful prover. We have huge and huge amounts of, of computational power. And, and basically we can leverage this um, extra computational power to, to squeeze things down, to compress it a little bit like, um, you know, compressing a file, I guess, um, uh, to it, its minimal form. And it turns out that for computation, the minimal form is basically zero or very close to zero. And then you feed that small amount um, of, of, of information on, on, on the blockchain. And that's, yeah, that's how you get scalability. Um, in terms of other directions, just to give you a little bit of, of, uh, of flavor. So one that I'm, that I'm quite excited and it, it, it it's, it's actually, um, very reminiscent of, of proof of work, um, is, is, um, 
cryptography, which is related to time. So, and I, I call it um, crypto physics. So it's kind of um, cryptography meets physics. So in the, in the, in the world of, of Bitcoin, we have a proof of work. And what is proof of work is basically a proof of energy expenditure. So it's like this, you know, really cool thing where cryptography, which is like, you know, very abstract mathematics suddenly meets reality through energy consumption. And it turns out that we can do a similar thing with time. So we can have um, cryptography meet time. And the way that it works is through computation. So if you think of proof of work as being massively parallel computation to, to connect with energy, it turns out that it's the, the dual for time. So by dual, I mean inherently sequential. So if you have a, a, comp a piece of computation that needs to operate one step at a time and it can't jump ahead some steps, kind of you need the result from the previous step in order to move to the next step. Well, if every step is gonna take some amount of time, you know, a few nanoseconds or whatever it is, then you can string these, these steps and you can use in inherently sequential computation to mimic time. And that will give you some really cool, you know, cryptographic primitives. Like for example, one is what's called um, time lock encryption. So you can have a message and you can encrypt it for some amount of time, let's say one minute. And after one minute, kind of automatically, it decrypts itself. Um, so that's kind of a really mind-blowing cryptographic primitive. And it turns out that, it, you know, it could be used, for example, in the context of Uniswap to remove front running. Right. So Uniswap, we have this 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 problem right now, which is that if you it, because you're trading in, in, you know, in, in, in public daylight and everyone can see your trades uh, and anyone can place trades ahead of you and behind you just by um, playing with with the, the gas price, um, you can get front run. Um, and so uh, one way to solve front running, which is uh, really cool, is you when you make a trade you got you will encrypt it for a very small amount of time you broadcast it it gets included on chain and then once it's on chain it kind of automatically gets decrypted and that makes it impossible to front run because the front runners don't know what they're front running that that is insanely cool i, I want to get into the details about the time element because to my understanding if if you're doing a computation that takes time can you throw more computation at it and speed up the time that it takes? Or is it actually locked into some t sort of time unit that we're familiar with? Like this will take, you know, five seconds and it will always take five seconds or five minutes and it will always take, you know, five minutes. How does that time element work? Um, so um, basically you want to, you want your, your, your time lock encryption where, where the delay is based on inherently sequential. And what does inherently sequential mean? It means that even if you own like all the computing power in the universe, that's not going to help you. Like you're going to need to do step by step and it's going to take time to, to do the whole computation. And one way to, to think of it is, for example, a hash chain, right? So you start with some sort of, of number and then you just hash that and then you hash that. So you're repeatedly hashing um, in a sequential manner, not in a parallel manner, but in a sequential manner. And... You know, the idea of hashes is that the output of a hash is meant to be some, some random looking number, right? So you can't predict random looking numbers. So your only way forward is just to keep on hashing um, and you can't parallelize it. You can't get speed ups. 
One of the things you can do, on the other hand, is that you can try and um, design very specialized hardware um, that will do the in inherently sequential computation you know, faster than using, let's say, a CPU, which is not optimized for this particular operation. And so um, one of the kind of the, the, the crazy projects that we have at the Ethereum Foundation is to try and build the best possible um, hardware that, that, that humanity can build for this in inherently sequential uh, computation up to like a small margin of error uh, and then distribute this hardware for, to, to the whole world. And that will give you basically a, a, a very decent um, way of mapping computation and time. Is that the VDF project um, that you just described, Justin? Okay, so some folks might be familiar with that. Well, so, so you just described SNARKs, which gives us a way to compress trust, essentially, increase transactions per second, trusted transactions per second. And, and then you just described sort of a, a time lock sort of tool that gives us almost an alternative to, um, to proof of work in, in some ways, because just, just like it's very difficult to get energy in the real world, it's, you know, no one knows how to time travel, so we can't go back in time. So that could be a very strong base primitive for lots of other things once we have certainty uh, of, of a given uh, timestamp. What else is there out here? I mean, just to, to give a small note on, on, on the, the time thing. So it, it turns out that when you have this notion of time in cryptography, you can do perfect randomness, unbiasable randomness. So you know when you when you think of um, you know Ethereum as a computer, it can do everything. Well, it can do many things, but one of the things it couldn't do, which is super basic, is randomness, right? And that's one of I think one of the reasons why we don't have you know things like lotteries. Like we could have a billion dollar lottery on Ethereum. Uh, the only missing ingredient is that we don't have we don't know how to do you know good randomness, um, and you know. It turns out that there's a very deep connection between time and randomness. Um, okay, moving on. So in terms of other primitives, um, one that is you know quite quite cool and it it's, it, it it follows actually is quite related to the snark is zero knowledge, right? So zero knowledge is this idea where you're doing computation, and this computation involves secrets. And you don't you want to prove that the computation was done properly, but you don't want to reveal the secrets. Hmm. Um, and it, it it turns out that once you have the snarks, where the S by the way stands for succinct, um, you're almost you almost have you're more than half the way there in terms of zero knowledge. And the reason is that if you you have your computation and it compresses everything to a tiny amount of data. So your, your amount of leakage, you know, kind of information theoretically is very, very small um, you know, to, to, to start with because your proof is tiny. So you know, if you started with lots and lots of secrets, the, the, the most you could leak is like the, a, a small portion of your secrets. But it turns out that um, you can easily get zero knowledge from snarks. Um, so this is one of these, these very powerful things. And, and if you if you think of it in the context of of, of DeFi and, and Uniswap, it basically solves privacy, um, and, and 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 you know this 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 is a big deal for DeFi, right? Like, can we really have large 
you know, players, large institutional players, or even the, the retail, you know, participates in a big way on DeFi where every single transaction is for the public to, you know, to analyze and, and, and see, it, it, just, it just won't work, right? So um, we, you know, privacy is a necessary step, it's coming, um, and, and we have the tools um, to, uh, to address that. And I guess um, in, in the context of, of Uniswap, you know, we have, uh, we, ha we have this, this, this on-chain uh, uh, privacy aspect where uh, not only can we, can we match what the centralized exchanges do, right? So in the context of a centralized exchange, you don't tell anyone, you know, all you see is kind of the order book and, and the trades, but you don't know who's making the trades or who's adding orders to the order book. Um, so, but the, the, the one trade-off is that you have to share who you are with the exchange. So not only can we match this in the sense that the, all the public information is only the trades and the order book, but we can go beyond that. We can be in a position where not even this, the exchange uh, is aware of, of, of who's doing the trades. So Justin, are there any other uh, tools that we should talk about before we actually go into the Uniswap deep dive? We're kind of blending these conversations as it is anyways. You know, there's actually so many tools out there. So um, let me try and pick, uh, you know, two. So one which is really awesome is this idea of fully homomorphic encryption. The idea here is it's kind of off-chain privacy. So if, if zero knowledge solves the, um, the on-chain privacy, what about off-chain privacy? So on off-chain privacy, you have a different problem, right? So you, you're, as a user, you're, um, you're, you're very constrained, right? You're using DeFi on your phone or on your browser. You know, you're not running a data center. Uh, with, with. And so what you do is you're relying on a, a service provider and you, you're basically making API queries. You, you're, you're sending them information and they're giving you responses. And every time you make a query, you're basically leaking the query. So for example, if you do a Google search and you, you, know, you, you, you type in some rather you know, personal information, then Google will know that. And it turns out that this, there's this magical primitive called fully homomorphic encryption, FHE, which allows and this is mind blowing, which allows um, a service provider to respond to the query, any query, without knowing what the query is. <laughs> so imagine Google being able to, you know, give you like the top 10, you know, hits on, on whatever query you make without being able to know what the query is. Yeah, that is absolutely insane. And I think the, the need for that in the, these days is pretty obvious with all the, the topics of surveillance and surveillance capitalism going on. I think that applies to so much of what you know modern society talks about as some of the problems that we are trying to solve in, in today's society. Right. Um, and, you know, if, if I were to you know, make it this a little bit more concrete uh, in the context of Uniswap, um, so we have, you know, a service called the Graph, which is basically backend infrastructure to to Uniswap. And what it does is that it gives you kind of all the the the, the trading metrics and whatnot. So you can say, okay, give me information about the ETH die pair between this date and this date, and it will, you know, will pull in all the information uh, and, and and display it to you on the screen, so you can make kind of an informed trading decision. Um, but you know, you're also using other services like Infura, for example, um, or that, that also have like similarly similar kind of API um, um, query points. 
and you know when you're leaking this information you know you could potentially you know these service providers could potentially link kind of addresses to like ethereum addresses to ip addresses and they could um you know even further de-anonymize you beyond what you're already leaking um, on, on chain. So we've gone through a number of different cool new tools and applied them to Uniswap. Uh, and so I kind of want to actually formalize that conversation. Justin, when you see people interacting with Uniswap, what are like the low hanging fruits that maybe people don't think about that they are actually trusting, uh, you know, centralized choke points, centralized, you know, uh, points of trust, and which are these tools applied to help remove trust from that whole process? What, 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 what should come first in this conversation? Right. Um, so one actually, which I haven't mentioned, which is which is low hanging fruit, um, in several ways, is is this idea of custody, right? So, just to just to zoom out a little bit, custody I think is um, is a big reason why we're having this bull run right now. You know, it's kind of like a, a technical detail hidden in, in in the background. But what has happened is that over the last few years. Um, Custodians such as exchanges, but also other custodians, have built um, really high-grade custody um, of of crypto assets. So, what what does it mean to custody crypto assets? It simply means um, being able to secure a private key. And so, what they've done is that they've um, they've designed systems where the the, the the private key is split into multiple shares, um, and then um, these keys can be kind of can work together kind of somewhat recombined but not really to compute the output of a function and this function is the signing function so basically it's um you know the custody has 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 been uh sold for um for the, for, for for large financial large financial players and i think we're going to see custody being solved again for for retail and for retail specifically it's kind of surprising to me that this hasn't happened yet but Basically, if you're if you have funds on MetaMask, you know, on your on your desktop, on your laptop, they're pretty vulnerable. And the reason why they're pretty vulnerable is that there's any number of ways in which an attacker can get your funds. And one of the reasons why it's scary is because not only are you as an individual vulnerable, but the whole space is vulnerable. So it's kind of a systemic risk where from one day to another, you know, everyone using MetaMask could lose their funds, which would be, you know, devastating. It could be like a $1 billion hack. Um, so if you think, for example, of if there's like a remote code execution vulnerability in the browser, which happens very frequently, or your operating system has a remote code execution vulnerability, or maybe there's some sort of malicious employee within MetaMask or malicious employee within the Google Play Store or the Apple Play Store that will, you know, push forward a malicious update or malicious code you know, you're extremely vulnerable. And so what you want to be doing in the context of custody for retail is very simple, it's just 2FA. We have that for exchanges, but we don't have that for decentralized exchanges. So what is 2FA? It's very simple, is you take your private key, you split it into two parts, one part on your laptop, let's say, the other part on your phone, and then you read, you need, an attacker would need to hack both your phone and the desktop in order to, 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 to get the, the, the two. And like the, the best way to do 2FA in a decentralized fashion is using a notion called MPC, multi-party computation. And the idea here is that you have multiple parties, 
each with secrets um, that want to compute the output of a function. And in this case, the two parties are your two devices. So while there's one human, the two parties in question are like your computer and your phone, or maybe you know, maybe you want to be even more secure in like your computer, your iPad, and your phone, and you know maybe something else. Uh, and and so um, when I ever like log into Apple, Apple says like, hey, is this actually you? Type in this code. Perhaps there's some sort of mechanism where you know my phone and my computer are both doing a little bit of computation to produce that private key, and then then there's some sort of relay of communication between these two devices. So even if there's a malicious person inside of MetaMask or who got a bug on my computer, uh, it's isolated. Is, is all of this correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the great news is that this can be, you know, largely transparent to the user. For example, you know, your, your phone, so you're going you're gonna to trade on your laptop, right? Because you have a big, a big screen uh, and your phone just going to be sitting there in the background. And you can you can give it some rules, which you say, like, if I'm only trading, let's say, you know, $100 or less, you know, within a day, then just automatically sign it. Um, and only if certain rules trigger, then, you know, just send me a notification and I just need to tap yes, and then it's done. Where are those rules housed? Those aren't rules built into Ethereum. That is off-chain rules. Where are those rules stored? Yeah, so this is basically an opportunity. Um, I think a low-hanging fruit opportunity for someone in the ecosystem um, to, to go build this. And it's basically, they would build apps, an app which runs on your phone where you can, um, you can you know, just tell it what kind of rules. And I think things like um, wallets like Argent uh, try to do this to an extent. Um, projects like Zango do this to, ex to an extent as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, as, as, as Vitalik says, you know, that I think there's, 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 there's a lot of opportunity in, in not only security, but also the UX of security, just pushing this forward. I want to underscore how important custody is, in particular self-custody. That is the thing that keeps this entire money system economy decentralized, right? The, I mean, we, we chose the name Bankless for this movement um, because we want to do more without banks. And the way banks centralize historically uh, has been primarily through, through custody. Even with gold, gold is inherently a decentralized you know, store of value money technology, but it's very hard to defend and protect your gold, isn't it? That's why it accrues or to move it and these sorts of things. That's why it accrues in banks. And then once it's centralized in, in, in banks, um, you use, lose that decentralization. You, you lose that self-sovereignty. So what we're talking about here is applied cryptography, basically. If we can make private key management easy, if we can incorporate, you know, social, um, uh, the ability to store things socially or across multiple devices and have a great user experience, then we don't need crypto banks to the extent that we need them now, which is a great thing for the decentralization of this movement and our ability to go bankless. That's how cryptography plus economics leads to um, an incredibly powerful tool for good for the world. Absolutely, yeah. And there's like no fundamental reasons for not having both security and UX. It's just a matter of time. Justin, when is this coming? Like, why haven't we seen it yet? And when is this coming? I think this is this, this one in particular is a low hanging fruit. Um, and I, 
you know, I really want to see it in 2021. And I'm more than happy to talk to people who, you know, are in this space and, you know, want some 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 ideas uh, about how, how to actually uh, deliver on that. Um, it's it's low hanging fruit. Like and, and part of it is because all the heavy lifting cryptographic work has already been done uh, for for these institutional players that are now custodying, you know, you know billions of dollars. And, and, and have allowed uh, for, for these more regulated institutions to, you know, to, to come in. Okay, so Justin, let's continue with the Uniswap case study. And again, we're just un- using Uniswap because everyone is familiar with it. We're not picking on it in any particular way. Let's say we solve the multi-party computation issue for private key management. We've got that solved. Our MetaMask is now secure. Um, what is the next low-hanging fruit that is a vulnerability that you see people engaging with when they currently engage in, with Uniswap in its current state? Okay, um, another one which I think is is coming soon and is actually, you know, Uniswap have really done their best to push this forward is this idea of authenticating the front end, right? So when you're downloading a website, like how do you know you're downloading the right thing? And it, it's it's actually shocking how, how brittle the Web2 infrastructure is like you have this notion of a, of a registrar which will custody your your dns domain name they get hacked they can do whatever they want uh, with your dns um or you know even if there's some sort of rogue employee within and, and that's happened many times um there's a whole infrastructure around ssl certificates and these so-called certificate authorities and basically we can remove all this trust uh, with with IPFS and 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 ENS um, and this this is just plain old you know hashes and signatures but it's kind of on the off chain uh, side of things and you know we're already starting to see browsers you know do the integration with ENS and IPFS like Opera uh, and Brave um, and you know this is just a, 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 a relatively kind of incremental and, and slow rollout, but it's it, it, it's happening much faster than I expected. Um, so what, what does that do for the end user? Yeah. Does, does that just mean that there is a www. you know Uniswap IPFS uh, URL that I can go to that is always persistently available so long as I have the internet connection? Yeah, so what that gives you is um, anti-phishing, right? So someone, you know, like, the, the Uniswap front end is extremely valuable to an attacker. They they ho- get hold of it for some period of time. They can fish maybe tens of thousands of people into basically signing the wrong transaction on their MetaMask and just losing their money. Um, so, you know, they could, they could, you know, for example, authorize, right? You know, with ERC20s, you, need this, you have this authorization step that you have to do and then you can trade, you know, they could authorize, you know, all, all their funds to, to the wrong contract instead of authorizing it to the Uniswap to some sort of rogue contract. And that, that will, you know, potentially allow them to, to steal all, all their money. So this is, this is really is a security thing, not a liveness thing. And so if, if I remember correctly, Uniswap does have a IPFS uh, website. Is that, do you know if that's true? Yeah, yeah. So they push you know, their website to IPFS. Should we be using that one instead? Or does that does that one not have all of the solutions that what, what we are talking about right here? Yeah, the, 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 the problem is, is there's still intermediaries and more specifically, there's, there's Cloudflare. So Uniswap has actually done a great job in what I call kind of uh, assumption consolidation, right? You want to try and minimize the number of parties that you're trusting. 
And what they're doing is that they're using Cloudflare as both the registrar who controls the URL and um, as the IPFS gateway. So the gateway is kind of this bridge between the old Web2 world and the Web3 world. Um, and it's, it's, it's a very thin layer of infrastructure, which is not necessary for some, ex for some browsers like, 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 like Brave um, and Opera, but it, it's still required you know, for, for the more ma you know, mainstream browsers like, like Google Chrome. What you're talking about here too is not only anti-phishing, but uh, there's, there's a criticism that um, the user interface of Uniswap is a centralization vector and a, a third party could shut, just shut down the, the interface and then it, it you know, um, shuts down not smart contracts ability to use Uniswap, but users ability to, to use Uniswap. And if it's persisted- Specifically the non-technical users, right? And if it's persisted to IPFS, and you have an ENS domain name behind that, and Cloudflare starts using that. By the way, we uh, we saw a um, press release this week that that Cloudflare was um, looking at how to incorporate more IPFS and ENS inside of its content delivery network. I'm not sure if that's totally related, but it feels like what this means is you could have unstoppable user interfaces, basically, that are always available. Yes. And like this has real practical implications for millions of people. Like, um, if you think, for example, of and this is this is a topic which really grinds me the the, the wrong way is um, you know is, is sanctions. Like for some reason, right, the U.S. government thinks it's all powerful and it can impose sanctions on other countries, and then you have millions of people suffering in these countries, and. Um, like it turns out, and this is unfortunate that that you know, and that there was some sort of mini controversy on, on Twitter that the, the Uniswap front end just doesn't work in some countries like Iran or Cuba or whatever. Um, and, you know, it's very unfortunate. And I think it's linked to the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, um, there is uh, a legal entity behind Uniswap uh, that is based in the US and they have to comply with sanctions. If we were to have this, you know, really good native integrations, then suddenly we're opening up this technology to some of the people in the world who need it the most um, that are under these, these, these sanctions. Okay, so we've solved the custody issue with multi-party computation and using multiple devices. We've solved the persistent front-end accessibility using things like IPFS. Um, what's next on the low-hanging fruit? Where should we go next? Okay, um, I think another really cool one um, is this idea of, of, of sync. So basically you're, you're on your phone or on your browser and you, you haven't been connected to the Ethereum blockchain in some amount of time. So you're out of sync, right? And um, what you want to do is basically, basically sync up. And uh, the, the piece of infrastructure that is very common here is, is, is called Infura. Um, and basically you can go to Infura and tell me, okay, what is, what is the head and, you know, and, uh, and, and sync up. And this is, this is bad for several reasons. The first reason um, is liveness. Infura goes down and half of DeFi, the front ends go down, not ideal. Um, but there's maybe an even, even worse problem than that, um, which is um, around uh, Infura being malicious and feeding you wrong data. So it tells you that you know, this is the real state of Ethereum, but actually it's something completely different. And this kind of goes back to the whole, you know, phishing 
thing where it's like a, you know you have slightly different attacks going um going on uh, but basically they can trick users especially the less sophisticated users into doing really bad things including losing their funds um, so one possible attack on on uniswap if 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 infura is compromised is that infura could tell you that you you you've made a trade when actually you didn't do the trade like you know your 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 slippage protection kicked in and you know you actually didn't do the trade so you you think you hedged or you think you're in a position when actually you're not or you know vice versa it could tell it could tell you oh your trade didn't go through uh because of slippage protection so you you try again you know you redo the trade and it turns out you you're now overexposed because you've made the trade twice um and you know for uniswap i guess that's not too bad um, but you know for some applications it's devastating if if infura um, happens to be happy happens to be compromised and so the technology um, that basically solved this uh, which is which is very cool um, is one uh, like clients uh, but um, so that's that's infrastructure that we can I, I, we can provide at the at the layer one, um, making the layer one friendly to like clients, and then another one which is very cryptographic uh, heavy, but uh, we've made big big strides in in the recent months even, is this idea of incrementable verifiable computation, and the idea here is it's 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 a snark, um, where you you can kind of always keep on building on it, so you have. Imagine, imagine the, the tip uh, or the, what's called the head of Ethereum. Every time there's a new block, the state progresses. And so you can imagine that for every single block, there's an associate, associated proof that proves that not only is this state transition valid, but all the previous state transitions all the way back to Genesis are, are, are valid. Um, and you can do that for light clients in such a way th that the syncing process is kind of instantaneous. You only have to download this one snark and it will tell you that, you know, this is the valid chain. And you don't have to trust, you know, uh, an entity like Infura for both liveness and for safety. So is this using that same sort of principle of compressing computation using cryptography down to the bare minimum? And that makes it really easy to say, say, I don't know what block number we're at in Ethereum right now, like, you know, some 10, 20 million, I don't know. But, you know, 10, 20 million blocks takes a long time to download. It takes days to download. But you're, what you're saying with this light client mechanism is you can just download the latest block and then you're trusting whoever you're downloading it from. But in that latest block, there is a header that can verify every single block in all of history. So in that instantaneous moment, you get a complete verification that you are actually indeed communicating with the Ethereum blockchain. Was that correct? Yes. Um, not only are you communicating with the correct blockchain, but also from there onwards, every query that you make to the Ethereum blockchain, for example, if you want to read some state, in the blockchain, all of that is authenticated and, and, and provably secure. So Infura has, is a very common criticism uh, from people outside of Ethereum because people say, quote unquote, Ethereum is centralized around Infura. Is this the direct counter argument for saying like, well, even if that's true, this light client innovation is the thing that's going to solve that. Is that what this is? Yeah. Um, so admittedly, the ETH1 design is horrible for light clients. It's not light client friendly. It is possible to do it in theory, but it just in practice is very, very messy. In ETH2, we have made a huge effort 
to make ETH to the beacon chain light client friendly. And it's extremely, it, it, it beats, uh, you know, Bitcoin by an order of magnitude in terms of light client friendliness. And Bitcoin is extremely light client friendly. And then you can, on top of that, um, you can have this kind of optional layer of infrastructure, which is, uh, which is the incremental, incre incremental verifiable computation that I was talking about that compresses kind of these relatively lightweight proofs, but that still grow with the amount of time. So if you've been disconnected for two weeks, it's going to be 14 times greater than if you were disconnected for just one day. Uh, but, you, you know, you can compress these two weeks down to, to, to a single proof or any amount of time down to a single proof using this incremental verifiable computation. Okay, so we've solved custodianship with multi-party computation. We've solved uh, we've solved syncing and being able to trust which what is the correct blockchain with uh, light clients. Uh, what was the first one? We also solved um, uh, front running. Yes. And so where where do we go next? What's the next lowest hanging fruit? These are some of the biggest problems that people I think uh, appropriately critique Ethereum in its current state for. Yet what you are saying is that we have the cryptographic tool to solve all of these problems. Where should we go next? What's the next lowest low hanging fruit? Yeah, I mean you mentioned people criticizing and you know very often when when you know Hayden you know makes a tweet, you have like the the you know, maxi trolls that come down and then they, 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 they try to list all, all the downsides. So what I've done is I've gone on Twitter and I've, I've tried to find every single criticism of Uniswap and every single one so far can be solved with cryptography, which is, which is amazing. Um, so we talked about also on-chain privacy, off-chain privacy. Um, one which, uh, which, is, which is cool is this idea of composability, right? Like one of the big power of, of DeFi is that you, you have these uh, money Legos and you can compose them together. Well, it turns out that uh, before money Legos, we had cryptographic Legos. Um, and specifically, we, had a, we have a framework in cryptography called universal composability, the same composability word. Um, and the universal, what that, what that means is that you can, if, if if you have a primitive which fits within this, this framework, then you can compose it with any other cryptographic primitive and you're guaranteed that it's not gonna break, um, which is very much unlike DeFi nowadays where you take two, two money Legos, you put them together and then there's an explosion uh, some of the time. Um, and so I'm, this is a little bit more you know, nebulous and a bit more of a kind of open research, but I think there's, a, there's an opportunity out there for someone to come up with a similar universal composability framework, which is generalized to crypto economics, not just cryptography, um, so that we can have very strong assurances that if you're gonna build your your money Lego, it's, it's, not, it's never gonna blow up and it's gonna play nice with the other uh, money Legos. So the word compartmentalization comes to mind where we are have all these DeFi money Legos and while they can be composed together, when in their current form, when we compose them together, they start to meld into the same thing. Yet what I think you're saying is that we can still have those same benefits, but we can actually compartmentalize each money Lego to be kind of in its own ecosystem so that, uh, and, and as a result of that, the composability accidental accidental interactions that create explosions can be controlled. I'm still a little bit uh, unsure as to how that control comes from. Maybe you could expand on that. How do, how do we get stronger assurances that when we combine two money Legos that we're accidentally not creating TNT? Right. 
Um, so so what, one of the features of composability is that you kind of you kind of naively have this exponential explosion of complexity, right? You start with with you know one body. You know, there's this famous body problem in physics, which is like the, the three body problem. You start with with one body and two body and three body, and then the complexity just blows up. I um, mean, it's kind of similar with uh, with with these money Legos. Like you have one money Lego that's all fine and good. Now you have two. Complexity has increased. Now you have three, and it's it's kind of Melkaf's law, right? Which is like the it's it's quadratic. Like for for every node can can talk to every other node, and then you have this quadratic um, thing going on. And really, the 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 genius of universal composability is that if you prove local properties, if your one money Lego, you prove that it has certain properties kind of locally then that gives you global guarantees about the whole system the whole universe um, if you were to compose them so basically it it's a way to limit complexity and facilitate the security analysis you just need to analyze one one money lego at a time as opposed to analyzing the whole system with which could have all sorts of weird complicated emergent behavior uh, that is impossible and chaotic What's a theoretical problem that this solves? Maybe you could give us a, an example that uh, our listeners and myself could relate to. Yeah, I mean, you could think, for example, um, you know, we've seen one money Lego, which is flash loans, right? You, you, com you compose it with, um, <clears throat> with let's say, Uniswap, which is going, which is going to be, you know, a, some some used as a price oracle, and then you, there's like a, a third DeFi money Lego, which is um, like um, you know, synthetics, right? A, a, the way you build a synthetic is you use the oracle. So individually, each of these DeFi apps is is secure. But when you put the three together, the oracle, the the synthetic, and 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 the um, the flash loan, you you get an explosion. And then, and then, how does the how does this solution uh, prevent that from happening, or prevent prevent something from blowing up? Right. Um, so basically, uh, and this is this is kind of an open problem. But you know, the reason why I'm optimistic is that we have a solution for pure cryptography. Like the open problem is basically to come up with a set of properties for money Legos, which will tell you that um, if you adhere to the to to an interface to an API for these Legos which have certain properties, then you'll have like a universal, universal composable oracle, for example. Um, and that, that will be kind of secure regardless of, of if you have some sort of, um, you know, flash loan uh, infrastructure. Yes, this, this is maybe the most nebulous kind of idea, but um, I, I think it's a, a good challenge for someone listening. So what you guys can't see here, or you can if you're watching this on YouTube, is, or actually, no, you can't, but we will share this. This is a, a spreadsheet that Justin put together of objections that are in place. I think, like, you know, definitely you've heard some of these. If you've been on Twitter, if you've been in the crypto circles of uh, Ethereum is, is centralized around Infura, no one's going to be their own bank and, and, and use private keys. Um, you know, it's impossible to uh, download and sync a note, all of these things. And Justin is going through this line by line, row by row, and talking about how cryptography solves this. We will actually share this spreadsheet. Justin, assuming it's okay with you that we share this spreadsheet. Okay, we will. We'll sh share the spreadsheet in the, in the show notes so you can see what we were working from. What haven't we covered still, Justin? What's next? 
Okay, um, there's at least two. Um, so um, one of them is latency, right? So um, when you're making a trade on, on, on Uniswap, you know, it, it, it could take several seconds um, for, for your trade to go on chain. Um, and, you know, we've made huge leap and bounds, right? So we have, for example, Bitcoin, where the average block time is 10 minutes. In ETH1, you know, the average block time is, is only 15 seconds. But there is this one caveat where, because it's proof of work, sometimes it's like one minute, sometimes it's one second. And, and, and this variance really hurts um, user experience. So we have, you know, when, in ETH2, we're making um, a kind of another big breakthrough forward is that we have these fixed duration slots. So there's like this 12 second slots. And so you have much more um, control over the, the duration, but 12 seconds is still an eternity, right? Um, you, want, you want hundreds of milliseconds because that's, that's the speed at which the internet operates. Um, and the, the, the good news is that, um, is that we, we in, in, in EVE 2 and in with sharding, we're gonna be able to get uh, this kind of latency. And the, 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 the trick that we have here is um, what's called uh, staggering. So we have these 64 shards, right? This is where transactions get go on chain in, in the shards. And what we can do is instead of having all 64 shards be aligned in time, we can stagger them a little bit by let's say 200 milliseconds each. So shard zero kind of will have a block you know, every 12 seconds and then shard one will have a block every 12 seconds plus 200 milliseconds relative to shard block zero. And then basically, if you stagger all your, all your shards, um, then basically every 200 milliseconds, you have an opportunity to include your data on the, on the EVE2 um, you know, system. So you will be able to get a kind of Uniswap um, latencies like um, uh, down. Uh, by, 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 by a huge amount, you know, down, down to basically internet level uh, latencies. So that's just a really clever mechanism for, you know, keeping the throughput the same because we can't increase throughput. That's, that turns into centralization. But since we have 64 shards, we have some optionality with the timing of these shards. So that actually gives Ethereum the L1 some, uh, maybe it's an illusion, maybe it's not. Maybe it's actually more of a, of a special trick up the sleeve, but having a, having a base layer blockchain with 200 millisecond uh, block times, perceived block times, uh, is pretty powerful. That's a, that's a UX that is been, has been hounding this entire industry since Genesis. Yeah, it's a really cute trick, and it's one of the the advantages of sharding in the sense that you have different people working on different shards at any given point in time, and so basically you can just assign tasks at, at you can schedule everything so that the, as you said the perceived latency is is very very small. Um, you know, one of the, the 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 problems with this with this idea is that it's it's potentially not. Um, crypto economically uh, incentive aligned. And <clears throat> the reason is that um, when, you're, when you're building a block, you have various incentives to either publish your block early or to publish late. So, you know, one, one incentive to publish, you know, early, for example, is that it, it gives your block more time to propagate through the network. Uh, one incentive to publish your block late maybe is so that you have more time for transactions to come in and then you have more transaction fees. 
And so um, one of the tools that we're considering using is, is these, these VDFs. So the VDS, remember, they, they, they link cryptography and, and time, and they basically um, allow us uh, to, to limit the extent uh, by which a, a block proposer can, can, can play around, can manipulate when the block comes out. So you're kind of forcing it into a very specific schedule for, for broadcasting and creating these blocks. That's absolutely insane. Justin, you said you had two more. Do you have another one for us before we move on to what I think will be the most mind expanding part of this entire episode? Yeah, so I think um, I think this is a great segue uh, with the last one. So one of the criticisms of, of the Bitcoin maxis is that Uniswap is great and all, but um, the only thing you can trade there is ERC-20 shitcoins. And the, 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 they're correct to an extent, like, you know, like they, they will say, oh, you can't even trade Bitcoin really, because the only thing that you have is like shitcoinified Bitcoin, which is wrapped Bitcoin. Um, and it turns out that with, with very fancy technology, you can build, um, you can have Bitcoin, the, the real deal, the native Bitcoin, um, totally trustless, can live on Ethereum using pure cryptography. And Justin, when you say the native Bitcoin, you're talking about um, a Bitcoin that is tokenized on Ethereum that has the same trust assurances as native Bitcoin on the Bitcoin network. And I know our listeners will be familiar with, with the differences there. That's what you're talking about though, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. So, and, and maybe you could also talk about the comparison between a system like that and TBTC and how uh, a, a native token uh, is actually an improvement upon something like TBTC. Yeah, it seems like TBTC uses the um, the crypto, the economic part to supplement for the, the, the cryptography that it's it's not doing. Exactly, yes. So this this fits in, you know, what I, the heuristic that I said before, like if cryptography doesn't work or it's too difficult, try cryptoeconomics. And that's exactly what TBTC has, has done. Um, the problem with TBTC is that it's it's too collateral intensive. So basically, um, the idea of TBTC is that you're going to create a Bitcoin synthetic. And the way that you do synthetics is with over collateralization. And so if, um, you know, if you want to have, you know, $10 billion of Bitcoin on, on Ethereum, you're going to need, you know, $15 billion of, of, of Ether. And it just doesn't scale. Um, it's, it's, or at least it's, it's extremely expensive. Um, and then you have you have a, a, another you know very interesting project called RenBTC, uh, where he, there they actually use uh, you know multi-party computation, um, and but they they also have a very important um, economic aspect where they have this Ren token, and it turns out that if an attacker um, buys out a majority of the Ren tokens and participates in these MPCs. Um, then they, they can they can basically break the system and so it's it's a very similar consideration where um, the you know for REN BTC the market cap of REN uh, needs to be at least as large uh, as the as the tokens that are being you know bridged over from 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 Bitcoin over to Ethereum so that also doesn't 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 scale very well and then you know just to go through all the the interesting I guess um, versions of BTC. We also have the wrapped BTC, and wrapped BTC is basically like a centralized custodian, specifically BitGo, 
uh, which is which is which is trusted, and that's that's obviously um, not ideal. So um, it turns out that if you um, if you use um, code obfuscation, which is this very powerful technique that I was talking about earlier, then you can do a really cool trick. So just to give a little bit of context, the 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 Bitcoin blockchain is kind of stuck in the Stone Age, if we kind of kind of extend this this metaphor, in the sense that the only thing that the Bitcoin scripts can do, the only thing they understand, is hashes and signatures, and this is kind of unfortunate because you, um, in order to build a two-way bridge between Bitcoin and Ethereum, which is trustless, you want the Bitcoin blockchain to be aware of the Ethereum blockchain. Um, so the, 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 the process basically of, of, of having these bridges is, <clears throat> is, is like a four-way a four process. So you have your Bitcoin, your BTC on Bitcoin, you're gonna lock them um, on Bitcoin. The, the Ethereum blockchain sees that they're locked and then it's gonna mint an equivalent token um, on Ethereum. And then once, once you've, you've you've had enough playing with your BTC on Ethereum, you're gonna you're gonna burn the, the the tokenized version of Bitcoin. And then, and this is the the hardest step, you want the Bitcoin blockchain to see the Ethereum blockchain and see that they have been burnt, so that you can unlock them on the Bitcoin side and kind of redeem them one for one in a trustless manner. Um, but the problem is, how can you make the Bitcoin blockchain aware of Ethereum using just signatures and, 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 and hashes? And it turns out that with um, code obfuscation, you can do a generic um, snark to signature reducer. So what does that mean? It means that you can take any snark and instead of verifying the snark the usual way, which involves advanced cryptography that the Bitcoin blockchain does, just doesn't have the capability, um, you can distill it to just a signature. Basically, the, the, what the program does is that it's going to verify the snark internally. So the obfuscated code will verify the snark. And there's a secret key inside the program, which is obfuscated. Remember, that's the superpower of code obfuscation, is that it, it has a secret inside it. And then it's going to use this secret to, to sign off on the fact that the, the, uh, the, the statement that is being proved by the snark is correct. And then now that you have this snark to signature um, reducer, you can take the signature and, and put it on the Bitcoin blockchain, which, which it will understand because it's just a plain old signature. And that is sufficient to, for, for Bitcoin to be aware of the Ethereum blockchain. Basically you can build a snark, which tells you this is the state of Ethereum right now. This is a proof that this is the valid state, you know, going back to, to the previous discussion around incrementable, incremental verified com computation. This is the, the state of the Ethereum blockchain, and now you can verify it, and now you can close the loop and build a totally trustless uh, Bitcoin uh, on Ethereum. A, a two-way bridge between Bitcoin and Ethereum is the gold standard that I didn't know was possible. And so what you're saying is that it is theoretically proven to be possible. It's just that we need to actually apply the cryptography. How big of a challenge do you think that is to actually get something like this up and running? Like, where are we now and where do we need to be to get this to actually work? Yeah. So going back to the, you know, the, the three big stages of cryptography, you have theoretical, applied, and then real world. 
we're, we're just basically leaving the theoretical. We've answered positively the answer, can we do this? Uh, but, you know, it's kind of comical how far away we are from practicality. Um, like r right now, if you were to try and and use these techniques of code obfuscation, you'd have a program which would run, you know, for, for longer than the age of the universe. It's like the the it's so impractical that it is laughable. Um, but it's actually, you know, n not so laughable in the sense that um, this is the journey that cryptographic primitives take. So if you, if you look at snarks, for example, snarks, you know, were kind of sold theoretically 30 years ago. Um, and back then they were, it would, they were comically uh, impractical. And, you know, over, over time, with, with uh, lots of dedication and research and, and, and development, we now have snarks which are extremely, extremely fast and, 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 and practical. And so my kind of opt with my optimistic hat on, you know, in in this exponential world, um, I'm I'm very hopeful that, um, you know, in 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 twenty years, you know, maybe thirty years, uh, we will have this primitive and it will be practical, and it, and one of the the interesting things is that it actually allows us to run the EVM on Bitcoin, uh, which is kind of an interesting consequence. <laughs> um, but yeah, we will still be, I guess, limited by the one megabyte uh, block limit. <laughs> yes, we will for eternity, I think. <laughs> so, so the mental model I've had with this is, is we've, we've experienced Moore's Law's growth in computation, and that has scaled computation. And it seems to be that uh, the optimistic case for a cryptography run universe is that we get comparable levels of growth in that scale in computation, but we get it scaled in efficiency in cryptography. And so if we do see that like Moore's law level growth in cryptography's ability to scale computation and compress it, then that's actually how we do get that two-way Bitcoin to Ethereum bridge. Is that the right uh, perception to take, Justin? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, in you know, in the real world with transistors, we have Moore's law which is maybe like a doubling of the the transistor density every every year or so. In in cryptography, it's 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 much much faster. You have a primitive like Snarks or IO, and it's more like um, you know you have a hundred x improvement or a thousand x improvement every year. Um, you know you started so far away, you you know like you astronomically far away. Um, but but um, you know over a decade, if if every year you improve by a factor of thousand, then eventually you'll get there. This is because it's software changes primarily. We're not talking about like you know phys physics constraints as we were with Moore's law. Exactly, it's it's pure software, um, and even even more kind of abstractly, it's like these cryptographic protocols and and mathematical tricks and whatnot. So Justin, say we have this two-way bridge. We've solved that problem. Let's talk about the incentive to actually get. BTC onto Ethereum. And I, I think people uh, kind of forget that there's two different versions of Bitcoin. There's BTC, the asset, and then there's Bitcoin, the blockchain, in the same way that there's Ether, the asset, and Ethereum, the blockchain. Yet there's just this uh, obfuscation with Bitcoin because it's the same name. But there's actually two different things going on here. So after we establish this two-way bridge, Justin, maybe you could illustrate why people would migrate their BTC, the asset, from the Bitcoin blockchain to the Ethereum blockchain. Right. Um, so, you know, as you said, there's, there's, there's two Bitcoins. There's Bitcoin with a capital B, which is the blockchain, and Bitcoin with a lowercase b, which is the asset. And just for the sake of clarity, 
when I'm gonna re when I refer to the asset, I'll actually say BTC. So we have Bitcoin the blockchain and BTC the asset. And I guess there's you know in the short term there's various kind of reasons to 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 migrate BTC onto Ethereum. You know, for example, to make to make use of of yield. Um, you know, in the context of of, of DeFi yield farming. Um, but I I actually believe that long term, if you look at a few you know mega trends that you know we we can dig in, I actually don't see a future you know in twenty to thirty years for Bitcoin the blockchain. Um, I, I I think that there's going to be uh, what I call like a, a decoupling of the the asset and the blockchain. Um, the 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 asset is going to outgrow its shell. The shell is kind of um, going to 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 crack and break, um, and there's going to be an uploading of um, the BTC the asset onto Ethereum. Uh, and when the 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 Bitcoin blockchain does break uh, for for reasons that uh, we should go into, um, then um, at that point we can declare um, you know any BTC on the broken Bitcoin to be, you know, burnt, lost forever, um, which, by the way, is great for scarcity. Um, and then, you know, we, we can then declare Ethereum as the, the new, more secure, more friendly home for, for BTC. Yeah. What you're talking about is back to your comment about state. You're just migrating state here to a better computer. Yes. I mean, the important thing here is that we need to do it in a, a trustless and scalable way. Unfortunately, none of the existing solutions, um, you know, for, for tokenizing BTC allow for that. But in the future, uh, we will have this, um, you know, migration process, which uh, is aligned with the, the values and culture of, of, of Bitcoin. And I think I'm hoping I think that in 20 to 30 years, it will be it will be obvious. And, and, and it is actually a win win for everyone, um, both both the, 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 the Bitcoiners and, and, and I guess the Ethereans. Yeah, not for the miners though. The miners tend to lose for some, for some reason in both, in both camps. Uh, Justin, why, why are you, do you say that uh, the Bitcoin blockchain is destined to die? What, what is these uh, mega trends that's going on in cryptography that would indicate that the Bitcoin blockchain has a, a countdown timer on its lifespan? Right. Um, so I guess there's, there's kind of three, three big uh, reasons. Like the, the first one is kind of a bit nebulous, which is that um, the Bitcoin blockchain is, is ossifying, or I should say is already ossified. And I guess culturally speaking, it has this um, mi maximum viable ossification. It will be as, as ossified as it can be. And, you know, we've talked about this. It's somewhat at odds with the greater macro picture of an exponential world. Um, and, you know, if you go back to the root of ossification, it means, you know, becoming a bone. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, I, the way I picture it is that Bitcoin is becoming stronger and stronger. You know, the layers and layers of bones, but the, the, the environment, the context is adding more and more pressure. And at some point in time, it's just the bones is going to go crack. Um, now, why, what are these kind of external pressures? There's kind of two, two flavors, like the first one is around quantum computing. Um, so we have this kind of quantum megatrend, which just 
changes the rule yet again of computation, right? If, if blockchains is an innovation, computing quantum is as well. And there, there is some non-trivial intersection between, between blockchain and quantum, which we need to, to take into account uh, seriously. Um, and then the other kind of big mega trend, I guess, is, is the flip side of the 21 million um, Bitcoin limit, whereby, um, and this, this kind of moves us away from cryptography into the economic aspect of crypto economics, um, whereby um, it, 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 it's been shown that basically um, the, uh, the incentive alignment disappears once you only rely on, 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 on fees as opposed to, to subsidies. So with the 21 million limit, the, the, the block subsidy goes to zero, you're left with only fees. And this is problematic because um, basically the, the, the main issue is that fees can be stolen in the sense that if I'm a Bitcoin miner, I build a block with transactions. Um, today, you, you're kind of expecting all the other miners, once I find a block, to build on top of my block. And they have an incentive to do this because there's this baseline um, inflation in, in terms of the reward. But if you have no inflation, actually the, 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 the thing that a rational miner would do is that it would not build on your block. Instead, it would steal all the transactions that, pay, that pays fees and, and, um, and then try and, and, and build and fork off basically. And, 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 then, and so you have a, a team from Stanford which basically uh, analyzed this and, and built you know, models and they wrote a paper um, basically explaining why um, it's, a, it's an unstable kind of crypto economic equilibrium to only rely on transaction fees. We made this. We've made this argument a number of times on Bankless. The very the second argument that that you're making, and I think one of the interesting things about it is um, Bitcoin is memed as digital gold, and there's an element of of truth to that meme in that it helps uh, somebody wrap their mind around the concept of digital scarcity. So that makes sense, right? But one major difference that always seems to be overlooked is that the fact that dig gold in the physical form does not have to pay for its security with transaction fees. It paid for its security costs in like the supernova of a star. Like it's a, it's a chemical element, right? Um, and it doesn't have to, its security is not dependent on some sort of transaction fee for me to give a bar of gold to David, right? Whereas Bitcoin totally is. And in fact, that's the model. It's getting away from its inf you know, issuance meme as creating the security, which is its core strength, and moving to this this transaction fee, that that makes it not very much like gold. And I do also agree this will become more apparent to people. The breakdown of that digital gold meme will become more apparent to people as time goes on, and block subsidy every four years uh, gets diminished and and cut uh, further. But what does that mean? Bitcoin is left with it. It kind of means it's left with what its core strength arguably is right now, which is it's a it's a meme. It's a it's kind of a property ledger, right? And I don't mean like when I say meme, I I actually don't mean that in a condescending way. Like I have, uh, David and I I think have high reverence for memes, right? Like money is a meme at some some level. It's a social social coordination tool, but um, it's a very Exactly. It's a, it's a very different Bitcoin than the future that I think many Bitcoiners imagine today. That, that, that's kind of the future that, that you're painting. Well, I actually don't think it's that different in a way because 
Um, uh, 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 I think a significant portion of Bitcoiners love BTCD asset, but they hate the blockchain. Like the, the, the blockchain is like a... <laughs> they don't even use it. <laughs> it's a necessary evil. Like... Um, like the real the real purpose of Bitcoin is all about the assets. So I think we're fairly al aligned here, right? We're we're giving Bitcoiners the opportunity to take their their their, their precious BTC and 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 like house it in a very secure and friendly environment, um, and kind of a little bit like a butterfly, I guess. You know, it 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 it, it comes out of the cocoon. And then it, it, it finds emancipation as, as a butterfly starting from a caterpillar. So this is an economic argument. This is talking about crypto economics. However, what's new to me in this conversation is that there is also a purely cryptographic argument that the continuation of the Bitcoin blockchain might not be able to continue as trends in cryptography uh, improve. Uh, can you let's just rehash that part of the conversation because that's the novel part of the conversation to me. And then we can actually go into perhaps the migration process from BT, BTC on Bitcoin to BTC on Ethereum. Yeah. So there's actually three different ways in which quantum potentially affects, um, you know, a Bitcoin. So the first one is the most well known. So in 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 quantum you have this this. Um, this algorithm called Shor's algorithm, and it allows you to do things like factoring large numbers. But it also breaks the, the cryptography on Bitcoin, which is basically based on elliptic curve, the discrete log problem. Anyway, long story short is that quantum breaks the uh, cryptography in, in Bitcoin. And what that means, there's actually like an economic um, um, consequence, which is that all the lost coins at least the lost coins for which the, the, the publicly has been made public. And um, Peter Wooler, who is um, one of the, the, the core Bitcoin developers, um, did some statistics and he found in, in 2019, I believe, that 37% of the Bitcoin supply was um, kind of liable to these kinds of quantum attacks. So basically the, 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 the public key is, is public as opposed to just the, the address, which is the hash of the public key. And with that information, a quantum computer, a large enough quantum computer could basically um, find the private key and then spend the funds. And this is bad for the same reason that the DAO was bad and it led to a fork, right? The DAO basically was, oh God, we have an attacker who's now in control of 10 or 15%, I forget exactly, of the supply. That, that's just not gonna work. Um, is it and so um, you know imagine having an attacker with you know even 10% of the Bitcoin supply you know if Bitcoin is a multi-trillion dollar asset that that's just un, un, untenable and so it ruins the credible neutrality of the asset because some attacker got their hands on Bitcoins that wasn't theirs in an illegitimate way yes exactly you have basically you have a flood of Bitcoin which pollutes all, all the rest and so th we have assurances that this is a possible thing and likely to happen in maybe the next 30 years. Is that about right? Yeah, 30 years is the very conservative estimate that is usually given. Like, like it, everything moves exponentially, including quantum. And, you know, we have an equivalent of Moore's law for quantum computers. And mm -hmm. so far, it's very much on track. And basically, uh, you know, every year we're going to get better and better quantum computers. And in 20 to 30 years, assuming this, this, this law um, remains, then you know we'll be we'll be able to to break the 
the, the crypto. And it's kind of interesting because it, the time scales, like 20 to 30 years, align with the economic argument that I put before, right? Like in 20 to 30 years, um, like one of the reasons why the, um, the, the first economic argument didn't kick in is because even though the, um, the inflation reduces by, by two every four years, the price more than increases by two every four years. Uh, but if you look over very long timescales, you, you know, you can't have an asset which just grows exponentially forever. Like exponentials do end. Um, and in, 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 in 30 years, over 99.9%, like ju just about uh, over that will be, will be mined. And, and like one of, the, one of the other things is that the, basically the, the ratio of the security budget and the asset should be just totally out of whack. You know, you're going to have, you know, like a, a factor of, of one to a thousand. And so it, it's, it, it just doesn't, that doesn't make sense there. Justin, is this quantum problem not a problem for Ethereum? It is. It is, absolutely. Um, and I think um, Ethereum will go through the, the same migration process that I'm, that I'm, uh, that I guess um, I'm happy to describe, but maybe before describing this migration process, uh, I should kind of flesh out the, the other two quantum attacks uh, that are relevant to, to, to Bitcoin. Okay, so the, um, the other um, basically two attacks are, are based on what's called Grover's algorithm. And this actually affects proof of work. So um, in, in um, you know, very famously, Satoshi wrote one CPU, one vote, right? And what he meant by that is that your computational power is going to be linear with the number of, of transistors that you have and the amount of energy that you're spending. So you can kind of think of it as, as one transistor, one vote, or one joule, one vote. It turns out that in, um, in quantum computing, you have these really non-obvious uh, effects where you have um, a superposition of things and you have... Um, quantum entanglement and and these very you know cool kind of quantum effects mean that you actually don't have this this linear rule one one transistor one vote instead you have more like uh, you have this this quadratic effect where um if you if you run a computation for n steps your your computational power is kind of actually more like n squared as opposed to n um, and so what that means, it has two consequences. The first one is that um, at some point in time, it's possible that, you know, the, 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 the very first um, person who's able to make um, proof of work on a quantum computer um, <clears throat> be more, more, more efficient, um, economically efficient than, than using traditional computers will have such a large advantage that for some period of time, um, they will totally dominate the proof of work. So, you know, it could be the NSA, for example, um, that, you know, for a period of one year, because they, they, they have the only quantum computer in the world that can do that, will be able to totally control the, bit, the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, so that's kind of like a, a short-term attack. But what happens with proof of work is that, you know, the, there's a difficulty adjustment, right? And so the, the, the difficulty will adjust and then other people will start getting quantum computers and then you, you enter this new steady state and all is good, right? It's only a temporary uh, attack, but actually that's not the case. So it turns out 
um, that there's a, a paper from, from this year uh, which was titled something like on the, on the insecurity of, of, of quantum Bitcoin mining, which basically made, made a very similar point to the, to the, to the, to the first one around the, 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 the instability of the, the Bitcoin mining when you, have, when you rely only on fees. So it turns out that this, this quadratic effect m m makes the, the chain even more unstable uh, because of these these um, because it, it just changes the, 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 the nature of mining. Um, so yeah, Satoshi, you know, quite understandably couldn't predict and forecast and, and kind of think through all the consequences of, of proof of work, you know, 40 years into the future. Um, but um, yeah, it, it's 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 a possible future whereby in, in 30 years, uh, mining will be will be truly, truly messed up. So this episode is centered around the combination of cryptography and economics, which creates crypto economics. And when you can't use cryptography, you use crypto economics to fill those gaps. But what you're saying, Justin, is that Bitcoin over the long term has both flaws in cryptography and in economics that, you know, no one could have predicted at, at Genesis. But now that we are 12 years into this revolution, we actually do see, you know, things on the horizon that we don't actually have the problems for and without a migration plan, without being able to pivot. And your concern is that, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain is trying to become as ossified as possible when there are still obstacles that we can see down the road. And so that has always been my, like, why my interest is always on, on Ethereum is that there's no way that we understood the power of crypto economics, the first blockchain, the first crypto economic system that this industry ever invented, which was Bitcoin. And so I'm much more interested in the system that comes after we understand that there is so much untapped potential in crypto economics. So you, 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 earlier you said that Ethereum 1 and also, also Ethereum 2 perhaps uh, has the same problem that Bitcoin does, yet it, has, it hasn't ossified yet. It has a migration plan. Maybe we can talk about what that migration plan looks like for both Bitcoin and Ethereum 1.0 into a future that does not fall to these, uh, these cryptographic attacks or economic uh, failures. Right. Um, so I guess the, the migration plan is in, is in two, two steps. Like the, the first one is you want to upgrade your cryptography to be so-called so post-quantum secure. Um, and, you know, that's, that's something where a lot of progress is being made, um, a, a lot of um, enthusiasm. And, you know, we have, this is something that's essentially been solved, at least at the theoretical level, because we know how to do quantum secure snarks, you know, the, for example, the stocks from Starkware, they're quantum secure. Uh, and then when you have that, you can do um, a very, very large part of the cryptography needed for, 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 for blockchains. So that's step one. And that's, that's just, you know, uh, an engineering update. The other thing that we need to do is more of an economic or a social update, which is that we need to find a way to bail out, to, to discard um, the, the lost coins because they're a liability. Um, so we need to have a, a mechanism to say, okay, these coins are, are lost and we're, we're just going to forget about them. And my, my suggestion is, is as follows, and I think is kind of uh, optimal in the sense that it, it gives people the, 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 the most time to migrate, right? You don't, you, it's kind of awkward if you're going to say, okay, 
in in one year we're just gonna um we're, we're just gonna call any coin that has migrated um lost because that would be extremely controversial but what is much less controversial is anything that is um forced to us by technology so basically there's going to be a breaking point and anything um that hasn't migrated after the breaking point well obviously um is is lost and so what i suggest building is basically this this two-way bridge between bitcoin and ethereum that i was talking about 100% trustless and then there's a little um kind of feature which i call um kind of a quantum canary and a quantum bomb okay so what is a canary is the canary in the coal mine the canary in the coal mine is able to sniff out um kind of as an early detector some something something bad um and and this quantum canary would be able to sniff out that quantum computers are here today uh, maybe not quant quantum computers large enough to break um you know the the the, the cryptography but it's kind of a an, an early sign um and then this quantum canary would basically trigger a a bomb which would destroy the bridge um, and once the, 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 the bomb has detonated and the bridge has collapsed, anything that remains in the old world is considered lost. And anything that has migrated um, has, has now found, is now in, what, in the canonical home. Um, and one thing that you can do is you can incentivize, uh, you can attach a bounty to this canary. So whoever is the first one to present proof to the blockchain that quantum computers are real and are a threat, they can receive a, a very generous bounty uh, for, for doing so. And so this is the formalization of the separation between BTC, the asset, and Bitcoin, the blockchain, where the Bitcoin blockchain is actually forgotten, yet BTC, the asset, is able to remain. If and, 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 and Justin, I want to get your question on this. A lot of Bitcoiners might listen to this and put, throw up a flag saying, you know, we don't want that. Like, we don't like Ethereum. We don't want our Bitcoins on Ethereum. But yet, is this an option regardless of consensus? Like, do we need consensus behind, you know, a majority of, of BTC holding individuals for this to work? Or is this something that we can build and establish anyways without needing to have some sort of consensus among stakeholders? Yeah, I think it's um, a little bit between the two. So um, we can have Bitcoin, the asset in a very native way, um, come come on Ethereum and, and many other blockchains. So in a way, Bitcoin will not just live on <clears throat> on Ethereum, but they will you know probably live on, on many different uh, blockchains. And so, you know, there is a social aspect where you know, I think that whichever blockchain has the most Bitcoin, you know, these native Bitcoins uh, will, will hold a claim for being the new home. Um, but, you know, in a way, it, they won't, you know, they won't be, uh, you know. Yeah, so basically, we, we, we need to be able to define some sort of canonical home. And, and, and the reason is that um, when you have Bitcoin on multiple blockchains, if, if the consensus of that blockchain blows up, um, then, then you, you, you want to um, basically preserve the integrity of the asset. So you want to have some sort of root notion of trust. Um, and, you know, I think, and that, that will have to be determined socially. 
but I think Ethereum has a good shot. Um, if it holds most of the, the, the tokenized Bitcoin and it has very high-grade security consensus, it has a shot as, as being deemed a new home for BTC. It, it very much strikes me that um, we've been talking a lot about like difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum is, is kind of ossification, right? Um, but there's also the layer at which you ossify, right? And one of the one of the challenges maybe is that Bitcoin has kind of ossified um, its 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 layer one, uh, when really the thing it needs to ossify more is its layer zero, because the social contract around Bitcoin as a fixed cap asset store of value reserve, the Bitcoin movement can remain ossified in in sort of in spirit, in soul, in social contract, um, but it can move its body. And its body, being the kind of the layer one, the network is sort of a, a rickety old computer. It's aging that really is going fast. To be, it's aging really fast. And so, what you're talking about is some, you know, a connection that may, maybe some Bitcoiners haven't made yet is like ossify your layer zero, ossify your your social contract and your meme layer. But you don't have to ossify layer one or layer two or layer three because this is compute technology. And we've just entered this new era and there are going to be waves of innovation that provide 10x, 100x improvements. So why in the world would you ossify your layer one? And that seems to be the, the more the pragmatic approach that Ethereum is, is taking. And I do actually see in Ethereum some more ossification around these, these core values in, in layer zero, which is exciting to see. But now with Ethereum, we have kind of layer one that we can continue iterating on and, and improving, you know, so much so that we're creating a whole nother network, this ETH2 thing that lives in parallel, and we're taking the layer zero and we're migrating it over. It's, um, it, it, it seems to be a very winning strategy. And I guess this, this is why, Justin, this, um, this episode fits very much into our ETH bull thesis uh, series of episodes here. Yeah, I agree. Um, it makes sense for Bitcoiners to solidify their their um, layer zero and and get ready, at least psychologically speaking, to um, to consider options on on layer one. But I think they've also already solidified their layer zero, or at least they're in the process of doing it. Like we hear people on Twitter or whatever um, saying that anything that doesn't have the twenty one million limit is not Bitcoin. And they will use very, very strong language. And I think it's being ingrained in the DNA of what it means to be Bitcoin. Um, and I think that's, that's perfectly fine. Um, but there are trade-offs um, to that mentality. There's like a, an, an other, there's a flip side to the coin. Um, and in a way, uh, Bitcoin can get the best of both worlds. <clears throat> Bitcoin can get the best of both worlds. It can not only have the this uh, amazing scarcity which is with the 21 million um, limit but it can also and even for free kind of latch onto the security guarantees that uh, ethereum uh, will provide with a very different model which is the the minimum viable issuance um, enough to provide security um, but minimal to keep um, basically, the economic waste uh, to 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 a, to a small uh, amount. It does seem to be the best of both worlds. It really is up to the social layer of Bitcoin to say if they actually want that or not. 
Um, and, you know, I guess at any point bias could be included in this conversation, but it would seem to be that it would be in Bitcoin's best interest to not go down with the ship and admit that Ethereum might be a great new host to upload BTC, the asset to. Because as we all know, Bitcoiners love BTC, the asset, and the Bitcoin blockchain is more of an afterthought. Justin, this episode has been absolutely fantastic. In addition to talking about the the obstacles and optionality between Bitcoin and Ethereum, we talked a ton about the power of cryptography. And at least with the bankless thesis, banklessness is about power to the individual. And cryptography has always been about putting power back into the hands of the of the individual. And my own Twitter handle, Trustless States, talks about the state of being trustless, which cryptography is inherently involved with. Uh, we would have never been able to produce this episode without your help and without your amazing agenda that you helped put a, uh, put together for us. Thank you for, for so much for coming on the Bankless Podcast and telling us and, tell, and showcasing the future of cryptography and what can it can do for the average individual and what this uh, crypto economic revolution can do for the world for returning sovereignty back to the individual. Justin, thank you for coming on the Bankless Podcast. Guys, thank you so much. It's been an honor. Bankless is one of my favorites. That is awesome to hear. Okay, guys, action items. We are going to include a spreadsheet to the research that we referenced as Justin was going through those cryptography solutions and kind of the, the problems that we solved. We'll include that as a link in the action items in the show notes. Check that out if you want the detail. Justin also mentioned some uh, research papers, so we're going to ping him after this show and see if we can get links to a few of those. Finally, bull market. David, what do we need in the bull market? We, we need, need five-star five star reviews. If you thought that, that this episode was interesting and informative and you think, think other, other people should listen to it, it. I, think I think other people should listen to it. We need five-star reviews to get Bankless to the top of the iTunes podcast charts. We're trying to scrape our way to the top of business and investing categories. We are not yet in the top 50. I don't even believe Ryan we're in the top 75. So it's up to the Bankless Nation to give us those five-star reviews so we can get to the top of the iTunes podcast charts your likes on youtube help as well if you're watching it that way guys risks and disclaimers eth is risky so is bitcoin all of crypto is risky you could lose what you put in we are headed west though this is the frontier it's the frontier of cryptography as well it's not for everyone but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey thanks a lot Thank you.